What can you learn about your lawn from a South Texas forager, and why should you never, ever kill dandelions? My guest is about to tell us. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, Episode 22. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello folks, welcome back to the podcast, Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian, happy to have you here, happy to be here. A couple of things, first, head over to my podcasts page at culinarylibertarian.com slash podcasts, and there you will find all of my social media icons, and you can join the Culinary Libertarian Facebook page, or any other medium you can follow me. Also, I would appreciate your support as a patron at my Patreon account, which is also located on the podcast page. And find and rate the show on your favorite podcatcher. The more ratings and positive reviews the show gets, the higher it moves up and gets more people listening. And the more people listening are the more people who get cooking. Uh, You can also share the show with your friends on social media through the Facebook or Twitter or Instagram app. As you know, the lunacy in Washington, D.C. is growing at magnitudes. Every day, somebody is going to out-socialist somebody else. Well, if you've had enough, you can bite back against all of that bad and misinformation with my affiliate link to Liberty Classroom, culinarylibertarian.com slash biteback. Listen to lectures on economics or politics or history or logic. Need a lot of that. In the comfort of your car on the way to or from work, the courses are short and accessible to everybody, so even the kids can play along. culinarylibertarian.com slash biteback to bite back against the failed education from the state. My guest today is a chemical engineer in his day job, but his passion is foraging. Now, I don't mean to suggest he doesn't like his day job, but we'll hear more about all of that in just a minute. Meriwether hosts a Facebook page and administers a website all about foraging. He's in South Texas, but what he knows and teaches translates everywhere. He has an impressive reach and following, which he is going to tell us about. Welcome, Meriwether. It's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's been my pleasure. This is a a topic of interest to me and possibly to other people, uh, having been uh, in my very limited aspect of foraging a morel mushroom and chanterelle mushroom hunter. But uh, so let's first start. Tell me about uh, who is Meriwether, where you are, and what you do. All right. Well, my real name is Dr. Mark Vorderbruggen, and by day I am a chemist. I'm a formulation chemist. I spent 18 years in the oil industry coming up with environmentally friendly replacements for traditionally less toxic oil field chemicals. But we got so good at getting oil out of the ground that everyone lost their job, and now I work for a consumer. Uh, chemicals company. If you walk into Lowe's or Home Depot or anything like that, pretty much most of the anything that's flammable or poisonous we do. And my job is to come up with non-flammable, non-poisonous replacements. 
but my evenings and weekends are spent as Merriweather. I teach wild edible and medicinal plants, mainly in Texas. I'm, I live down here in Houston, uh, but I've pretty much developed a following all across uh, actually North America, parts of Europe, Israel, the Middle East, Afghanistan, all over the place. It's uh, kind of weird for a small farm town kid from Minnesota originally. Well, I'm from Michigan, so I, I have a Midwestern sensibility about that kind of thing. It, it sounds a little surreal to be, well, kind of world famous. I don't know this thing yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> Give it time. Well, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I'm speaking to you today. We're going to talk about foraging because I couldn't even ask you a, an intelligent question about chemistry. So... <laughs> We're going to avoid that. Um, forging sounds, in its name, sort of self-explanatory, but humor us and tell me what, what does foraging mean? Okay. I basically describe foraging as finding the foods and medicines that are growing around you uh, freely, openly, within the laws of collecting them. Each state has a different law on what you can and can't and where you can and can't collect from. But just accessing this wonderful bounty that surrounds us. I, in my classes, I tell people, I'm going to help you tap your inner caveman. We're going to go back to what your ancestors were doing 500,000 years ago, keeping themselves fed and healthy the way we evolved. That being said, after the class is done, four hours of teaching, walking, bending, digging, I hit the nearest fast food joint and get a double meat patty of whatever. So it's not like I'm a vegan or anything like that, but I have decades and decades and decades experience with wild edible plants, wild medicinal plants, and how to use them. All right. There's this accumulated knowledge that you have obtained. How does one learn for wherever that region is, Israel, Minnesota, Texas, or Oregon, how does one find this knowledge? Well, what you all have that helps you out nowadays, and frankly, it's Google image search. I tell people after you know I'm done teaching them for the four hours, here's how you never need to pay me another dime. Uh, is you go home, go to your front doorstep, look around, see what are the most common plants around there, whether they be landscaping or you know, weeds or you know, whatever plants are around, starting right there at your very doorstep, identify them. There are certain structural features you need to know, like the arrangement of the leaf, the vein pattern on the leaf. Is it a tree? Is it a bush? Is it a vine? Is it a weed? If there's a flower, you know, what color is a flower? How many petals there are? Type that into a Google search, hit search or image search, and just start scrolling through the pictures and see if you can identify the plant you have. Once you've found the plant, then you do a search, well, figure out what its scientific name is, and then you go and do a new Google search uh, using the scientific name and the word edible and the word medicinal and see what pops up as opposed to spending years pouring through key guides and, and books and libraries and old dusty tomes and research reports and things like that. It speeds up the process quite a bit. So, so that's a fabulous tool. I, I guess my first question would be one of, even with all that information, what is, well, this is sort of answers itself, what is the risk of misidentification? Well, it depends on how close you Pay attention to details. Um, it's. I used to think it's really hard to mistake one plant for another, and then I actually started dealing with you know your average American, 
And I would get things like they are convinced this particular tree has two completely different types of, of leaves and flowers. And just looking at the picture they sent me, it's obviously a vine intertwined with a tree, but they could not separate the vine from the tree in their mind. They thought it was all one plant. So like I said, it just, you know, pay attention, look very closely. Uh, another good word to put in there, say, would be, let's say you're looking at a clover. You figure out something is a clover, you put in the word clover identification, or even the scientific name plus the word identification. And more likely than not, it will bring up some you know, government site or some website or some, uh, believe it or not, and a lot of people are going to freak out about this, but the Monsanto website has a huge section on weed identification where you can work through and figure out what weeds you have. Their goal is to sell you something to kill the weed with, a poison rather than a fork, <laughs> but uh, it's actually a, a pretty good resource for identifying the strange weeds in your yard. But you just need to go and find you know, multiple different references and just delve into it and make sure everything matches. On the plus side, there aren't that many really poisonous plants, and they are very well known, and there's lots of guides out there for identifying them. Right. Well, I, I think I was thinking probably more along the lines of, of mushrooms, which uh, because now I, I don't really know very much about the non-edibles. I just am really certain about the one or two edibles that I'm convinced I'm right about and having eaten them and still here talking to you, I'm, I rest certain in my knowledge that I can identify a chanterelle and a proper morel. Uh, everything after that, well, <laughs> I'm not so certain. So I'm very, very cautious. And I'm, I, I think that in the, uh, in the mushroom identification, uh, a misidentification could go very badly. You are absolutely correct. Uh, to put things in perspective, with plants, I tell people they want to find at least five features that match. And if there's anything that doesn't match, assume it is not the plant, not just some weird mutant that is still edible. With mushrooms, you want to match eight to 10 different structural features of it. You know, the size of the cap, the color of the cap, the color of the gills. Are the gills true gills or false gills or polypores? Where do the gills end you know, on the cap? Are they going all the way from the edge of the cap to the stem? Do they stop just before the stem? Do they run down the stem? Is there a veil? There's all sorts of structures in mushrooms that people just don't realize. They haven't sat down and studied a mushroom. And it's like a, a large part of it, again, boils down to the observation skills, looking at your reference guide and comparing it to what you're looking at in hand. If I may, I would like to suggest an excellent book. It is called 100 Edible Mushrooms by Michael Coe. And he actually starts you out in a grocery store. You buy you know, oyster mushroom and a portobello and a few others, and you work through the dissection of them. And he teaches you, okay, when I'm talking about false gill, this is what I mean. When I'm talking about true gill, you look at the portobello, this is a true gill. And he, you know, he teaches you, trains your eye how to see the structures of a mushroom that you need to properly identify it. And once you've done that, then you head off into the woods and it's, I won't say it's a piece of cake, but it really improves your, your, your ability. Well, that's excellent. And that's good. I will put a link to that on today's show notes page, which will be culinarylibertarian.com slash 22. Um, I worked many years ago in Tallahassee, which was interesting for lots of reasons, but in particular, 
the wild chanterelles quite literally all over town in residential sections and in little parts of Tallahassee has a nice feature in town of little quarter-sized block parks everywhere. So there's greenery and green spaces all over the place. And in the spring, chanterelles, man, boy, howdy, lots and lots and lots. Uh, I worked uh, with a woman who was something of a naturalist and found a mushroom called the Caesar's mushroom. Oh, yes. Which I'd never heard of. And she she said, no, I want you to know that the Caesar's mushroom is rare and delicious. And the one that looks almost exactly like it is poisonous. Yep. But I'm pretty sure I picked the Caesar's mushroom. Would you like to try it? And I said, yes. So she was right. It wasn't the poison one. And I've never seen it again. And it still remains, in my mind, one of the absolute best mushrooms I've ever had. I don't think I could find anybody I trust enough, again, to pick one. But man, oh, man, was that good. Yeah, They're actually all over the Houston area and up in the Sam Houston National Forest just north of Houston. Really? So, yeah. And- Again, once you know the structures, it's pretty easy to tell apart from what people normally call the Mario Brothers mushroom, which also has the red cap. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, if if I know anything about nature, red means stay the hell away, and I'm going to listen. Although they may they may not always be true. Um, so in Texas, as you're foraging, are you by Texas law allowed to sell what you forage? All right. First off. Uh, with Texas law, you are not allowed to take any piece of plant material from a piece of property without the property owner's permission. These laws go back to the sheep and cattle wars of the 1800s, which led to inventions such as barbed wire fences and repeating revolvers. So you need permission to take plant material from a piece of property in Texas. And I will tell you right now, you will never get uh, permission in city parks, in most state parks, things like that. In the national forests, uh, there is a land use permit that you can get. Um, it's like $25 for a year, and that does allow you to take different plant material out. Uh, the exception to this is, again, in the national forests, you are allowed to collect mushrooms without any permit or anything, but you cannot sell them. They are just collecting for your own personal good. Now, with the land use permit, or if you're collecting on private uh, property, which is 90% of where foraging gets done, 99% really private property, you can collect and sell stuff as long as you have the property owner's permission. So if it's somebody's house, and it's their front yard or backyard, and you say, wow, look at the bounty growing here, permission's probably as easy as a knock on the door. Yep. If it's a big vacant lot, what... That sounds like it presents a bigger challenge. What do you do then? Well, then either you can either uh, track down the tax records, see who owns it, or just move on. Like going back to the, you know, knocking on a stranger's door. I do that a lot. My wife is convinced someday I will be shot. Well, in Texas, you never know. <laughs> just, just knock on the wrong door. <laughs> but I, I got the spiel down pretty well. Hey, you know, I show them a copy of my book. This is me. I saw this plant in your front yard. Do you mind if I tear, you know, harvest some? Usually, I'll trade them a like a free class in their yard property in exchange for foraging rights. It works out pretty well. That's a good idea. And I would imagine they are probably interested to know 
just exactly what all that stuff is they mow down every week. Yeah. It seems like there's this, almost everyone has this innate desire to know the edible and medicinal plants around it. It's like it's built into our DNA, but that so much of that knowledge has been lost and they're afraid that it's really, really hard to find it. You buy a book and it has all these plants and none of them match in your yard. So having someone going, look, let me walk you through this, 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 this is good. Um, it used to be that I had a deal with my neighbors around us that they would not put down any you know, ant killers or pesticides or herbicides and I'd keep their yard free of weeds. But we've all gotten too busy now to keep that up. So right. I'm kind of bummed. I remember learning in elementary school about, um, and I don't even know the names of the plants that they showed me, but in our part of northern Michigan, there was uh, a handful of things that were edible. But I don't remember her, the teacher, discussing any of the plants being medicinal plants. Uh, tell me more about the weeds in our yard that are medicine, and what are they going? What are they healing? What are they fixing? All right. Well, let's go back a little because uh, just to talk about me as a chemist, I actually have a master's degree in medicinal chemistry and then a PhD in physical organic chemistry. So not how to make the molecules, but how to pick the right molecule to achieve a job you want. And when I, some of the first medicinal plant books I uh, read were by, oh man, suddenly I can't remember his name, Stalking the Wild Asparagus. Uh, this is a, Ewell Gibbons. Oh, embarrassing. So Ewell Gibbons, he was uh, a famous wild foods guy from the late 60s, early 70s. And he was the first one to start really looking into scientifically the medicinal properties of these plants. And what he found based on his research is there really wasn't any medicinal properties to these plants. What they were, were very super nutritious, lots of vitamins, lots of minerals, that sort of thing. And so just by the person getting better nutrition, the body was able to heal themselves. So that combined with my Western science uh, sort of belief system, arrogance, if you will, I assumed that that was all there was to medicinal plants. Fast forward, been teaching wild edible plants for years. People are asking about medicinal properties. I give them that it's just nutrition, but it keeps coming up. And I start doing some research because there was a lot of research, you know, looking at the molecules. And even as an undergrad, I looked at, I uh, worked with a professor that was doing analysis of natural products. Long story short, there actually is a lot of research showing, you know, the specific chemicals in medicinal plants and how they are used in the body and why they were actually effective plants above and beyond nutrition. So that led me into the rabbit hole of the whole medicinal herbal medicine thing. Again, from a Western science bent, I need to see scientific proof, double blind tests that this plant has this effect on the human body. Um, and it turns out there's bazillions of information on that. So let's talk hand lotion for a second. If you use a hand cream or a hand lotion, uh, most likely one of the ingredients on it is Elantian. And Elantian is originally taken from plants such as plantain, a very common weed that has a long history of healing uh, damaged skin. The Elantian basically tells uh, skin cells, this thing you're doing to heal this damage, do more of it and do it more quickly. So it's proven to help heal wounds, things like that. Elderberry, 
the in the elderberry flowers and in the berries themselves, there was a long history of using it to fight diseases. And they've actually found, yeah, there's a number of molecules in there that help stimulate the T cell production. Uh, so if you're sick, it, it increases the amount of T cells that are programmed to attack the disease. And so you get over the disease more quickly because you're throwing a lot more T cells at it, the white blood cells that are the hunter killers of the disease. And just case after case, there were things like that. Meriwether, let's take a moment out for a word from one of my affiliates. Folks, the government schools are not serving our kids. My sixth grader is being taught the only solution to the problems made by the government is government. Give your kid a fighting chance with the Tuttle Twins books. Author Connor Boyack had a similar problem, so he fixed it. He created the Tuttle Twins series. The books are retellings of classic books such as Atlas Shrugged or Bastiat's The Law or Hayek's The Road to Serfdom. The principles are retained, but the language is accessible so kids and adults can understand the principles of free markets. The Tuttle Twins are up to nine in the series, and if you purchase the series, they'll include a free PDF workbook with projects to help your kids continue the lessons from the books. Visit culinarylibertarian.com slash Tuttle Twins. That's culinarylibertarian.com slash T-U-T-T-L-E-T-W-I-N-S. If you don't like education, try ignorance. culinarylibertarian.com slash Tuttle Twins. And now let's get back to the show. The elderberry is interesting because it's uh, there's a fellow I follow who is a, a homesteader. He's a published author for homesteading, and he also has a side business of vending elderberry juice. Everybody who has taken it, including my sister, swears by it, says it's the best thing going. I, I Perhaps to for whatever the reasons are, I very infrequently get sick. When I get sick, I <laughs> I don't go to the elderberry juice. I go to something called Fernet Branca, which is an Italian um, vegetif, which tastes just about as bad as any alcohol can taste. <laughs> but now it's not true how it's made. The urban myth is it's made by witches and warlocks on the south side of the mountain on the full moon at midnight. You know, you know that kind of fun witchcrafty stuff. I'm, who knows? But what I do know is that it, for me, it it arrests the illness then and there, and I feel better the next day. Yeah. Uh, through this whole herbal medicine thing, I've developed what I call Meriwether's Elixir of Immortality. And it is a mixture of elderberry, burdock root, and reishi mushrooms. The elderberry is to fight general infections. The burdock root is a very potent liver toughener. It, it basically makes your liver work at its optimal powers. And, you know, the liver, its purpose is to break down any toxins that you take in. So by having a super powered liver, you're breaking down any of the environmental toxins that are coming in. 
And then the reishi mushroom, uh, these are found all over the world. In Asia, they are considered the mushroom of immortality and were only for use by the emperor. But here in Houston, about one out of every five dead trees is covered with these reishi mushrooms. And they have all sorts of proven medicinal properties there, antibacterial, antiviral, antifungal. People find it odd that a mushroom is antifungal, but it is very possessive of its tree. It doesn't want any other mushrooms growing in there. But there are also two uh, commercial chemotherapy cancer drugs made from this mushroom. One of the compounds uh, helps shrink tumors and prevent tumors from reoccurring. So if you have, say, a a kidney tumor taken out, then they might put you on this drug from the reishi mushroom to keep the tumor from returning. Uh, but then just daily doses of it should help prevent tumors from occurring. And then the other medicinal compounds in it uh, work as uh, they help protect the healthy cells from the toxicity, the poisons of the chemotherapy drugs. Remember, most cancer-fighting drugs, they're extremely poisonous, and the goal is to try and kill the cancer cells before you kill the rest of the cells in your body. But the they found extracts from the reishi mushroom uh, protect the cells from the damage, again, from the exterior toxicity that could be attacking them. So elderberry to prevent infections, viral and bacterial the burdock root to protect the liver superfy, you know, superpower the liver to make sure it's working on full power to detoxify my blood. And then the reishi to prevent tumors and then to just strengthen the cells themselves to protect against any toxins that do get into them. Um, and I've been doing this for about 12 years, haven't been sick since. Given that is anecdotal evidence just based on one person. So from a scientific point of view, it's not valid, but the individual components have all been shown to work that way scientifically. Well, now that is, that is very impressive and interesting stuff. Is that something that you, do you sell that online or is that just? No, no. The instructions for making it are on the Foraging Texas website, www.foragingtexas.com. And if you scroll down the right-hand side, you eventually will see Meriwether's Elixir. And it walks you through the steps of making the different tinctures of the burdock root and the elderberry and how to do what's called a double extraction from the reishi mushroom. But it's all just done in the kitchen, no complicated equipment or anything like that. It's just a little time-consuming. Okay, well, I'm a baker, so I'm, I'm, <laughs> I don't mind time with me. I'm all right with that. Um, well, you mentioned your website. And I did visit your website, very packed with information, lots of stuff there. You have to kind of go at it a couple of times because it's very, very intense. Uh, tell me about the foraging code of ethics. Okay. So I tell foragers there are four things as a forager you have to respect. And this doesn't matter where you are, what the laws are. But the four things you have to respect are, first, you have to respect the law. Second, you have to respect the land. Third, you have to respect the plant. And fourth, you have to respect yourself. So in respecting the law, depending on what state you are, different states have different rules about where you can and can harvest things. Uh, but the, the issue there is you want to make sure you're harvesting within the stated laws, just to make sure there's no problems. Respect the land, I fall back on the Boy Scout training, leave no trace. It's as simple as that, leave no trace. 
don't leave your water bottle you know there on the side of the trail don't leave your candy wrapper there if you dig something up fill the hole again sprinkle leaf litter over you know there should be no sign you are doing this with the respect the plant uh, there's a couple of things that are involved in that first how you go about harvesting if you're say harvesting some leaves from a tree if you just grab the leaf and yank, you're going to put a big, long tear through the bark. It's going to take a long time for that wound to heal. There's a good chance fungus will get in there and end up killing the plant. So you want to make sure you're always uh, collecting the plants with a nice, sharp, sterilized pruning shears or knife or something so you can do a minimum sort of cut. Also, a key thing is how much of the plant or plants do you take? On the Foraging Texas website, 219 plants currently another 34 waiting in the wings. Uh, one of the things, each plant is given an abundance code. Is it invasive? Is it plentiful? Is it common? Is it uncommon? Is it rare? Is it endangered? And depending on how plentiful it is based on those codes tells you how much you can take. Like if it's uh, invasive, I tell, you know, just keep harvesting until your hands bleed. That's when you have enough. Even if you just want one cup, just keep going. <laughs> Do what we did in Minnesota. We called it the zucchini trick, where you put a bag full of zucchini on a person's doorstep in the middle of the night. You do that with the invasive plants. Uh, plentiful, a lot of the weeds, you can take 90% and God will make more the next day. I mean, there's there plenty, plenty of weeds out there. As you get less and less common, so if you get common, even that 25% of the plant, uncommon 10%. If it's rare, I tell people get a selfie with it, but don't actually harvest it until the zombies come or we've entered Venezuela economics sort of thing. If it's endangered, I have them send me the coordinates because I'm building a database of endangered plants in Texas. And currently after 10 years of doing, 11 years of doing this, I have three plants there. But how much of the plant you take depends on how much it is around. Uh, you want to harvest in a sustainable manner. So year after year after year, those plants are there. Respect the plant. And then finally, respect yourself. You want to properly identify the plant. Make sure the plant you're looking at is the actual edible plant, not some you know dangerous mimic. So you want to make sure you've positively identified the plant or mushroom. But not just positively identified the plant or mushroom. You also need to know something about the environment in which it's growing because whatever chemicals are in the soil can very likely be in the plant itself so if you're around an old building a building built in the mid 70s or earlier it was most likely painted with a lead-based paint you don't want to harvest around there you want to back away a good 20 feet or so uh, and over in anywhere there's iron mining or really any sort of uh, mineral or metal mining iron gold silver uh, very likely naturally occurring with it is mercury. So around any sort of old mines, you don't want to harvest around there because there's a good chance the soil is contaminated with mercury. You need to know what's in there. So you respect yourself by you know, not just identifying the plant, but making sure nothing toxic in the soil either. Would you think the sites where fracking is happening would be a place you'd probably not want to forage? Okay, here's where I'm going to get in trouble with a lot of your audience. 15 years ago, 20 years ago, yes, that's not a place you want to fracture. But I've been in the industry for 20 years. I've been deeply involved with the fracturing. If you have had ice cream and a vinaigrette salad dressing, you've had all the components of frac fluids. Nowadays, there is no issue with fracturing. 
the uh, acidizing, there is some toxicity there, but it's at such a low level. We measure it in parts per million. It is below the threshold danger. So as long as you're not swimming in the you know gallon bucket of the corrosion inhibitor that they're mixing with the million barrels of oil or million barrels of, of frac water, it's not an issue. A lot of there's a lot of misconception out there about the chemicals of the fracturing and oil field industry. Okay, well, the the bucket of sludge sounds to some people like a challenge. Here, hold my beer. Watch this. <laughs> yeah, not so much, really. Well, not a good idea. I, um, I mentioned a fellow a minute ago. I mentioned the the homesteading fellow, and to me, foraging sounds at least on its surface, a lot like homesteading, you have a level of self-sufficiency where I think the difference lives is homesteading is very deliberate with the intent on sustaining the home and the people in the home with, with the water or the fruits of your labor from the land or the animals. Where foraging, yeah, if you get a meal... Well, well, it's a good day, but it doesn't sound to me, well, tell me if I'm wrong, is foraging a way to sustain yourself food-wise? All right, you are absolutely correct. The One of the big differences between domesticated crops and wild forage crops is the amount of food you get from them. The domesticated crops have been bred to produce a large amount of food in a small amount of area, and also for that to food, especially nowadays, to have a big window of when you can pick it, store it, and use it. Wild plants are more of a right here, right now sort of thing. And yes, they don't produce, you know, on a if you had an acre of weeds versus an acre of wheat, you're going to get more calories uh, definitely more calories from the domesticated crop. Just to go sideways for a second, calories versus vitamins versus minerals. It's real easy actually to get all, pretty much all the vitamin C and all the a lot of the other micronutrients and minerals and other vitamins from wild plants. Where it falls apart is calories. There is not a lot of calories involved or available where you find the calories are in the seeds, the tubers, and the nuts of wild edible plants which are very, very seasonable. The rest of the year, usually it's a fall type harvest. The rest of the year, there's not much. That's why you have to supplement it with game. So you can't supply everything, but you can supply easily 10% of your, your daily diet from wild edible plants, or even depending on where you are, you know, California, Texas, Florida, the Southern states in particular, uh, you can you know do twenty percent uh, you know salads for the entire family every day. So it's not a replacement; it's a supplement. And so you can stretch out you know your domesticated crops that much farther. Uh, one thing I truly any homesteader or you know permaculturist or any of these people they really need to learn the common weeds on their property and see which ones are edible. Uh, I talk to a lot of gardening clubs. I have a presentation called Tossed Salads, the weeds you should be eating instead of composting. Because a lot of those weeds are edible. They're a great source of food and vitamins and minerals. And generally, they don't need the care that a lot of the domesticate crops have. So there are certain weeds that are more nutritious than things you'll eat 
the issue comes down to storing them once they've harvested. It's really an only here, only now. So thrown in a meal is good, but easily 10, 20%, you can expand your, your food reserves with wild edible plants. Interesting. You mentioned micronutrients, and I was thinking uh, about the micronutrients. I am in the process of doing a little bit of reading into salt, sodium chloride, and and you know the stuff in the blue box versus the pink stuff or the black stuff or the the gritty uh, wet stuff from all the various places. Originally, my thought was uh, salt is salt, mm-hmm. and whatever is in the pink stuff is in such low quantities that whatever it is, is is fundamentally insignificant to what I'm going to be eating. I've been challenged on that idea a little bit, so I'm pursuing this a little bit further. So in the micronutrients area, magnesium and manganese and copper and chloride and all these things and zinc, are you aware of, do you know, can a forager help meet her needs in the micronutrients from foraging? That's a great question. And to explain this, let's go back to domesticated crops and more particularly the government recommended uh, dosage or we'll call them dosages amounts of the different foods. You may have realized, oh man, maybe it might've been 10 years ago already when they revamped the food pyramid and increase the, the, the amounts of especially green vegetables and so forth you're eating. Did you look into why they did this, why they increased the amounts? Well, I'm, I'm, I, I come with a cynic's ear and eye because the, well, I don't know if I'm going to give you the answer you're looking for, but my version of it is the lobbying part of the soy and corn industry has pushed Congress in the direction of all these plants and away from animal fats and meats. Well, that's part of it, but here's really what they found. So let's look at California. That's one of the big agricultural areas. The same fields have been being used to produce spinach and broccoli and all these things for since you know World War II, basically. And they found that the soil is pretty much depleted of micronutrients. They put on the nitrogen, they put on the phosphorus, that sort of thing, but they really don't have a way of replacing those nitronutrients. Those micronutrients are key for the plants themselves to develop the vitamins and other good chemicals in the plants. So if you don't have enough of the micronutrients, you can't get enough of that. So the nutritional value of a lot of the domesticated crops has dropped since World War II to the point where now you have to eat more of it to get that same nutritional kick for your body. Now, the wild plants, they don't have quite the same issue because they're just growing there in the soil. When they die, they're putting their stuff back in. It's The, the soil around them is very rich, especially dandelions. And we, we can go off topic on dandelions for hours if you'd like. But the dandelions in particular are really good at bringing the minerals back up and from you know deep, deep, deep in the soil, way farther well, just to put things in perspective, a dandelion root can go down 15 feet into the soil. Wow. So if you think about water-soluble minerals, every time it rains, some of those minerals get you know, washed deeper and deeper and deeper into the soil. The upper levels of the soil where there is the rotted plant material, uh, there's a compound called humic acid that kind of holds on to the minerals. But once they get below about a foot, the minerals get washed away, leached away pretty quickly. So the dandelions are really good at taking 15 feet worth of these leached minerals back up to the surface. 
if I had it my way, it would be illegal to poison dandelions. It would allow you to eat them, but you would encourage them in your yard because they bring up all these nutrients back that have been leached deep into the soil and return it to the, you know, the, the shallow rooted plants. But the end result is a lot of these weeds are very, very nutritious because the soils that they're growing in have not been depleted. Well, that's an answer I couldn't have guessed. It, you know, it's one of those, now that you've told me, it, it's, it, it has a reasonableness to it, but it never would have, I, j- I just wouldn't have thought that. I don't, <laughs> I just, being, not being a farmer in that respect, I don't, I guess I don't think those things. Yeah. I mean, that was the benefit of manure as opposed to just, you know, nitrogen, phosphorus, calcium sort of thing. You're, you're getting all those micronutrients too. Like with the permaculture, they try and you know return all the waste, plant waste and animal waste and everything back to that little plot of land they had to make kind of a closed loop. You'd made a comment about eating the way our ancestors did, and that, uh, in I don't have a good mind for these things, but I would guess in the at least at the turn of the century, the farmer uh, of our forefathers, you know, a couple hundred, a couple of generations ago did farming like that where the the cow pooped and the chicken went after the cow and so it was just this whole cycle where nothing really went to waste it all went into the land and it may have gone into the chicken before it went into the land but the chicken eggs were probably better the chicken meat was probably better and then the chickens excretes nitrates into the grass and the grass says hey thank you i need that and let's make better carrots for the cows and it's just it's just this big circle, which we have interrupted, but that's another show. Yep. <laughs> yeah, the progress and simplification isn't always the best way of doing things. Well, and then some level, no. And then there's also the fact that we can feed feed so many more people than before. So Yeah, the, the trade-off. You know, yeah, you would not be able to support the population of Earth by foraging or even uh, – you know, the, the small-scale farming like that, unfortunately. Well, and it also allows to produce, you know, the, the, the chemical, the nitrogen and the phosphorus in particular allows you to produce a lot more food per acre than you could ever do otherwise. So, yeah. They point out that by farming the way we do, we actually require a lot less land devoted to farming. So there can be more wild land out there. That was one of the big problems in Minnesota. I'm just going to go ranting here for a second. When the ethanol mandate came into play, uh, pretty much every little acre of land was converted over to the corn so the farmers could sell it to supply the, you know, the making of the ethanol for fuel. And they saw a drastic reduction then in wildlife, the geese, the ducks, the pheasants, you know, foxes, everything, because there was no longer any little niche of wild land for them. It was all cultivated. That doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure out. <laughs> no, it doesn't. But yeah, you know, we don't usually have brain surgeons in political office, I guess. No, and nor do we have economists. So, and <laughs> and we need both. Well, we need economists more than we need brain surgeons, but we certainly need intelligent people. Although there's an argument to be made that we don't really need the government, but that's also another show. How would you advise people? in 49 other states or around the world to learn what their local and or state rules are for foraging so that they can not upset the overlords. Okay. First, do not ask the police, do not ask the game wardens, do not ask the park rangers because they are actually not up to date or really knowledgeable about the specific rules. 
generally, their view is do not touch. So you need to kind of delve into the actual laws. A lot of times there will be a native plant society, uh, especially in North America, uh, both at a state level and at a national level. And they are, I found they are usually the best guide for you know, what you can and can't do as far as legally, because they're really interested in wild plants. They want to spread wild plants. And so they're very up to date on, can I take a plant from here and transplant it over there where it used to grow, but no longer does to spread it. So the different native plant societies are usually the best source of information. Um, other than that, the agricultural laws, um, there are quite a few plants nowadays that are considered invasive plants that um, you can like uh, dewberries, blackberries. You're not allowed to sell or plant dewberries or blackberries in Louisiana anymore because enough different uh, out-of-state ones came in and they've become an invasive nuisance. And they just said, okay, no more this. But if you look at um, banned plants. There's uh, the USDA and even states have lists of plants you can or cannot bring in. I get a lot of requests from different people outside of Texas. Hey, I'm interested in seeds of such and such. Can you send them to me? And so before I say yes or no, I do a lot of research looking, okay, are these seeds allowed to be sent out of state? Are they allowed to be brought into a state like California? You cannot bring any agricultural stuff into California because they're afraid it'll bring a disease that'll wipe everything out. Well, at some level, you could appreciate that concern. Yeah. Was, well, invasive plants are usually plants that are doing great in one place that end up in another place with no natural predators and take over. So, Yeah, kudzu. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there's a number of aquatic plants and a lot of things, surprisingly, a lot of them are edible or otherwise useful, but uh, they just wreck havoc with the ecosystem. There was a really good study, well, actually a really terrifying study that showed the insect population as a whole in the United States has been plummeting because we've replaced so many of the landscaping plants, traditional landscaping plants with uh, foreign plants from other parts of the world that the local insects can't eat. So we're starving them out. And when you lose the insects, then the things that eat the insects, the birds in particular, start disappearing. So they've even seen a drop in a lot of the, the normal songbirds and wild birds are going because the insects that they would eat are no longer there because the plants for the insects are no longer there. Big circle of life, big web. So just thinking through this a little bit, if the birds are gone or, or birds are going away a little bit, does that increase the population of things that the birds would be eating. And obviously earthworms, I think they seem pretty benign, um, but grubs, not so much benign and other things. So is, is there a relationship to this form plant making, uh, causing, this is, I'm trying to parse my words, but I decided I don't care, uh, causing a lower level of insect population making fewer birds because there's less food, increasing these other things that the birds would eat? Yes and no. Uh, so everything goes cyclical. So if you take out the predators, eventually the prey comes back. Um, they show like when you take out the, well, when we killed the mountain lions and we killed the grizzly bears, the deer population exploded and is you know denuding mountains because there's so many deer 
that they, you know, they're eating everything in sight. It's an overpopulation of deer. But at least the deer have something to eat. With the insects, even though their predators are gone, there's still no food for them. So they're not going to bounce back. And if I can just bring up one other thing, you mentioned earthworms. North America actually did not have many earthworms and just a few varieties. The fishing earthworms that people use, the nightcrawlers in particular, came from Europe. They're not native. And they are wrecking havoc in the, uh, the woods where they've been just, you know, fishermen, as I'm done with the bait, I'm just going to release them here and let them go in the soil. The earthworms, especially the big nightcrawlers that people use, they come up at night and they eat all the leaf litter that accumulates on you know, the soil, and then they go down in the soil. So they quickly get rid of the leaf litter. Normally, it would take years for that leaf litter to you know, be decayed, and the insects and the, you know, the small rodents and everything here in North America evolved to work with the, the leaf litter disappearing at a certain rate. Well, this rate has been massively accelerated, so the earthworms are eating all this food that the other critters use for different things, and so we're seeing a loss there earthworms are actually an invasive species causing a lot of problems. Go figure. You never knew this, did you? I did not know that. I'm, I'm, you said that, and I'm trying to visualize this, this big boat with <laughs> earthworms on it, which at some point probably happened. But that, no, I had no clue because yeah. like everybody else who went fishing, I went to the local bait shop and got a container of, of worms and went down to the lake and caught my fish. Mm-hmm. And then when you're done, you probably just, if you had leftover worms, either dumped them in the water where they drown or you dumped them on shore where they took over. But remember, this is, goes back over 200 years. People were bringing the worms over from, you know, pre-colonial days and they've spread enough. But yeah, go look it up. Go look, uh, you know, earthworm damage, forests, woods. It's pretty dramatic. Well, that I <laughs> stupefied. <laughs> I'm amazed by that. Most people are. They never give it a thought. No, and you know, I, I got to tell you, I was just, I, I was looking forward and we had, it really, I enjoyed the conversation, but I had no idea that I was going to learn the things I learned. <laughs> it's, it's almost, I don't want to leave my house. <laughs> it's a scary, world's a scary place. Yep, yep. You know, I, yep. Now I feel like a University of Michigan student. I want my chalk and a teddy bear. <laughs> But also, we, we are part of this world, so you just kind of go with it. True enough. All right. Well, can you give me – you mentioned your website. Give it again just so we can have everybody um, know the website, and I will remind everybody I'm going to put that link up at culinarylibertarian.com slash 22. All right. The website is www.foragingtexas, F-O-R-G-I-N-G-T-E-X-A-X.com. And on the left-hand side, there's currently 219 plants. I want to point out that it's most of those plants are found all over North America. It's not just Texas-specific. The big difference is what time of year the plants are showing up. And one thing I've done, each one of those plants, it has a map. Well, actually, it has two maps. Where in the state of Texas this plant has been found, and also where in North America, from Mexico up through Canada, what states and provinces is it founded? So it's useful all across the uh, North America. the The main thing is the times, the dates when it's available is going to be specifically for the southern portion of the United States. So www.foragingtexas. Okay. Excuse me. I also have the Idiot's Guide Foraging. It's uh, actually in the top five Idiot's Guides ever. 
And you can get it through Amazon. You can get it through my website. Let me just explain one thing about the Idiot's Guide. Well, several things. First, it covers all of North America. The publisher didn't want it just Texas-specific, so I picked plants that are found all across North America. In the back, there's actually a calendar that tells you, okay, if you're in the South, look for these plants You know, now. If you're in the central part of North America, look during this period. And if you're up North, look you know, this time of the year, which is something a lot of other foraging books lack. The other thing about idiot's guides is the way they work is they find an idiot to write a book for them. I do not get any royalties from it. So if you go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or something and buy it, I don't get anything for it. Uh, if you do go through my specific Amazon store, uh, amazon.com slash shop slash foraging Texas and buy it through there, I do get a 6% sales commission on it. So that's kind of good. Uh, but those are the two main things on Facebook, the Foraging Texas Facebook page, Wednesday evenings from 8 until 9 Central Time, so Houston time. Uh, I have a live one-hour show where I talk, uh, these last five episodes have been talking about medicinal weeds and wildflowers. I will not be doing it this week. I actually have a, a conference I have to attend, but it'll start up again next week. I'm on Instagram as Meriwether Forager. You can find me there. And every day I try and post a plant that I found that I really like, uh, you know, why I like it, how you use it, things like that. And same with Facebook. I post every day some sort of plant. So, and then people email me asking, you know, I ate this, what is it? Which is actually probably the only stupid question out there. You may have heard there's no such thing as a stupid question. The one stupid question is, I ate this, what is it? You know, identify it first, then decide if it's edible. Yeah, that was information in the wrong order. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I hope none of those people have needed any real urgent care. Let's just... just now, more than once, I've gotten an email from a, you know, a, a mom or a dad saying, hey, my 40-year-old ate this mushroom. What should I do? And I work during the day. I don't get to check my foraging Texas emails. I, you know, it could be 12 hours before I get to your email. Um, so, Yeah, well, let's hope so. Yeah. It's a little late to say get the kid to the hospital, but hopefully they did. All right. Well, Meriwether, it has been eye-opening and I have enjoyed that conversation very much. Uh, is there anything else you want to share with us before we hang up? Like I said, there's a lot of nature that people are disconnected from. We're on really almost the fourth generation of kids now that their parents are convinced every plant is poisonous. There's a poisonous snake behind every log. You know, and so there's this fear of nature. And so one of the things I try and do is reconnect, show people all these wonderful things about nature. So they go, wow, I can do all this. Because the more tied into something you are, the more you're going to care about it and the more likely you are to take care of it. If you spend your day just playing video games and just ignore the real world, you're not going to care about the real world. You might give it lip service, but deep down, you're going to say, you know, I don't care. It's you know, let someone else take care of it. But if you're starting to see it as a source of food and medicine and all these other great abilities, you start caring about it more. And that's my goal. Well, I think you're right about that. And I, my own children, one of them is the glued to the iPad kid. The other one, it's easy, but she would be outdoors if we did more outdoors. And I just don't know enough about uh, my neck of the woods here in Oregon. If we were back in Michigan where I grew up. Well, I was—I knew more then about that place than I know now about this place. So, 
Well, do you still have time to learn? Well, we do. And we've got a, a nice little hill that's uh, out back to go climb. And there's, uh, I was thinking, even in the middle of summer, it's it's pretty dry looking. The, this is called the high desert, so it doesn't get a lot of rain. I'm sure there's something there that I'm overlooking. Uh, I just don't know what it is. I need now my goal for the summer is to educate myself about what's around me. Yeah. Another great source of learning the plants around you are different botanical gardens, you know, where they actually, you know, have the plants there with the little name plant <laughs> placard saying what it is. And you go, oh, hey, I've seen that. What is it? And then you go Google, is it edible? Is it medicinal? And you just work your way through. All right. Well, and we all have some homework to do. And we have already, our summer has been planned and it's <laughs> not even the first week of February. Well, it was 72 degrees here in Houston today. It's always summer. Yes. I'm, Florida used to be like that, but it's, it's, I don't even know what it is, but it's snowing here. So not 72. <laughs> you have my sympathy. All right. Well, thank you very much, Meriwether. I do appreciate your time. My pleasure. All right, folks, that's going to do it. Remember, all of Mark's, uh, Meriwether's links to his books and website will be at culinarylibertarian.com slash 22. If you have a passion and want to start a website to share that passion with the world, you're going to need hosting. Use my affiliate link to sign up with Bluehost, the hosting service I use for the Culinary Libertarian page. Click over to culinarylibertarian.com blue to sign up today. culinarylibertarian.com blue.